Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. And today you may be going through the fire. Yeah, there's probably not much you can do about it because we all go through pain and suffering, hardship, even persecution at times in our lives. It's kind of an unavoidable reality. So how do we deal with being in the fire? Frankly, we can learn a lot from a very familiar story of some boys who were taken captive in Babylon and had to walk through the fire themselves. So I like to preach messages in message series, you know, have a topic and then just dig deep into God's word on it for like four weeks, six weeks in a row. That's what I really like doing. But in the month of May, we're doing a bunch of individual standalone messages. And so today I've got a whole sermon series. I'm going to try to cram into a short amount of time. Is that okay with you guys? Uh, So get ready because I'm just going to be letting loose on you here for a few minutes. Today I want to talk about being in the fire how to be when you're in the fire and I've tried to set the mood by requesting fire like temperature in the room you're welcome I I don't think the air conditioner's working so I'm sorry I went back there and checked it myself a little while ago it's set to 68 and cool but it's hot in here can I get an amen so they just turned on this air which does feel cool so hopefully it'll help ease the burden Um, so we're going to be talking about how to be in the fire we're going to look at the fire story it's a familiar story you all know the fire story and we're going to look at this story of these boys Daniel Hananiah Mishael and Azariah the story that you know that you're familiar with and we're going to learn what I think are kind of five B attitudes from these boys five things we can learn about how to be when you're walking through the fire in your life because you go through the fire in your life right I mean you have the struggle the burden the problem we're all tested and we all have to go through the fire at some point in our lives and we're gonna we're gonna look at how these boys went through the fire but we're not gonna start with the fire part of the story we're gonna start two chapters before that if it's okay with you because to be honest the you know the fire starts long before the fire you you know sometimes sometimes we're on the road toward the fire for a long time as things get worse and worse and worse you've been there right you've stressed over it you felt the pain of it you've dealt with it in your past and so I want to look at that and see if we can identify with these boys as they go through the fire so it's a whole sermon series I'm not kidding but we're going to try to try to cram it all in. So here we go. Let's start together in Daniel 1. Daniel, the book of Daniel. The author of the book of Daniel is Daniel. Daniel. Very good, very good. And so Daniel writes this. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem, the capital city, and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. 
So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. So the fire starts already. The enemy king comes and seizes the city of God, the holy city. It's taken over by the enemy king who steals God's objects of worship, the things used to glorify God. He takes those and he brings them home and gives them to his own pagan gods. There's probably a whole sermon there. Going to skip that one, okay? Then, okay, so, so here's what happens. Here's what happens. Here's what happens. So these four boys, Daniel included, are taken captive and taken to Babylon. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families. So these are royalty kids and nobility kids. They're kids of well-to-do, high-position-in-society families, and they've been taken captive. These are young boys. Daniel, at the time, is a young boy, probably a young Er than Skyler teenager. All right, maybe somewhere in the 12, 13, 14 year old range. These kids are swiped from their home in Jerusalem. They're taken away from everything they know. Their families are deported to Babylon. And now they've been ripped away from their homeland. And the king orders his his main chief of staff, Ashpenaz, to now take one more step and remove these young teenage boys from their families, separating them, isolating them, taking them away. Can you imagine what the mamas were going through? Can you imagine what the dads were going through? Can you imagine what these boys were going through as they'd been ripped apart from their homeland and now ripped apart from their families? They were in a place where they would never dream they would be. In fact, the first B attitude that we can learn here is they didn't belong there. See what I did there with the B? They didn't belong there. They were just kids. Jerusalem was their identity. Jerusalem was the capital city. It was the place of worship of God. It was where they'd been educated, where they'd been trained, where they grew up, all their family memories. Everything was all about Jerusalem. It's freedom. It's home, Jerusalem is. But now they find themselves in this foreign land, Babylon, where they didn't know the language. They didn't understand the culture. They all worship pagan gods there multiple pagan gods it's a polytheistic pagan culture completely foreign to anything they've ever known and here they are in this weird confusing place this place that's not freedom it's not home it's anguish it's pain it's isolation and anxiety babylon is a difficult harsh hard place for them to be they didn't belong there in Babylon. So they could have cried about it. These boys could have cried. Could have cried about it. <laughs> we don't want to be in Babylon. Let us go home, king. <laughs> we don't want to come serve the king. Could have cried about it. 
They didn't. Or they could have marched in protest, you know, marched in protest, you know, about the whole thing. Want to go back to Jerusalem. Set us free. Set us free. Set us free. But they didn't do that either. They could have cried about it. They could have got angry about it. They could have blamed God about it. Right? They could have been like, God, what, where are you at on this? We've been so faithful to you. We know you. We, we, we grew up learning all about you. We worshiped you in your temple, on your holy hill in Jerusalem. That's where we grew up. That's where we belong. We know the Torah. Listen, at 14 years old, these boys would have had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Especially as nobility, as royalty, they would have known it literally backwards and forwards. God, we're your people. We, we've been so good to you, and now we've been captured and taken captive and removed from our homeland and removed from our families. Where are you on this, God? What, what are you doing here, God? Why, why are you God? Why aren't you loving us? We thought we knew who you were. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been there where night after night you lie awake and you're stressing about it, you're worried about it, you're praying about it, whatever the, whatever the fire is in your life, man, it's all over you. It's just consuming you. It feels like it's eating you up and it hasn't even got that hot yet. And it's just tearing you up. Your life group is praying for you. Everybody knows that you're dealing with this burden, whatever the burden is, and you're just carrying it and it hurts. And the only thing you can do, the only thing you know to do is cry out to God, God, where are you in this? You've left me all alone. I don't even know what to do next. You long for Jerusalem, but you keep waking up in Babylon. You been there? I feel like I'm in Babylon all the time. Right? The older I get, I'm, in, I'm well into my 50s now. I just had a birthday. Well into my 50s now. And yeah, keep laughing, old lady. Um, <laughs> One day I'll still be laughing. <laughs> she goes, oh, good point. <laughs> so the, the longer, the more birthdays I have, the more I watch the news and I figure, I don't belong here. I'm, this is not for me. I, I'm not of this world. And then for a lot of us, it's much, much, much worse than that. Because you're in a place that you don't belong. You're in a place of suffering. The family's breaking apart or the diagnosis has happened or you can't get out of the job situation or he let you down again or she left or whatever it is and you're there in the place of the fire and you don't know what to do next. You long for Jerusalem, but every day you wake up in Babylon. So how do you be? When you're somewhere you don't belong. Let's go back to Daniel's story. Ashpenaz is told to bring some of the young captives to the king. And the king is telling him, select only the strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. 
Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning and gifted with knowledge and good judgment. Make, them, make sure you pick the smart ones, the good-looking ones, the strong ones, the cream of the crop to come and serve the king. Train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon and the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his kitchens, and they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. So now they're, they're being entered into a three-year-long training program. They got to learn a whole new language. That didn't happen overnight. That's hard work. You ever tried to learn another language? They got to learn a whole new culture. They got to learn all the literature. They got to be fluent in understanding why people in Babylon think the way they think. They got to go through this three year long education program. And they were just hoping to get their learner's permit next year. Right? I mean, this was the, these next three years were supposed to be huge years for these, I don't know, 14 year olds. Right? They were going to start, they were going to play on the varsity team. You know, they're hoping the scouts would come and check them out and they'd be able to get a scholarship to the college of their dreams. Right? Everything, they thought this was all going to work out a certain way. They were going to play on the varsity team, get a job, have the you know, cheerleader girlfriend, get the scholarship, play you know, in college, maybe go pro later on. Man, they had it all worked out. And they find themselves in Babylon. The formational years of their lives taken by the enemy king. No, you will be trained. You will forget that you are from Jerusalem and you will become a Babylonian. And so they took him into this program and they gave these boys new names. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, they, they renamed them. Daniel, in fact, his name meant something. All of them, their names meant something. It meant something very Jerusalem. All of their names glorified God. But that wasn't acceptable in the Babylonian, pagan, polytheistic, enemy, king culture. So they had to be renamed. Daniel, his name actually means God is my judge. But he was renamed, get this, Bel Teshazzar, which means Bel protects my life. Bel is one of the Babylonian pagan gods. You see how this name change is actually a mockery. God is my judge, but Bel will protect me from God. Next kid is Hananiah. Hananiah's name means Jehovah is gracious, but they renamed him Shadrach which means the command of the moon god. In other words, Jehovah gives grace, but Shadrach, he follows the command of the moon god, another of the many pagan gods. Azariah, his name means God is my helper, and they named him Meshach. Sorry, Abednego. Did I skip one? Shadrach, Meshach. I missed Meshach. Go back, to, go back one real quick. Sorry. My bad. Mishael, who is like God. Mishael means who is like God. And they renamed him Meshach, which means who is like Aku, another God. 
mocking the one true God. And then last, sorry, my bad, Azariah, God is my helper. They renamed him Abednego, which means servant of Nego, another one of their gods. God is my helper, but I will serve Nego. They're trying to reprogram these boys. Today, we call this process acculturation. It's where you bring somebody into your culture and you try to remove all of their past familial tribal culture and you try to reprogram them with a superimposition of your culture onto their life. It's called acculturation. And they're doing this to mock who they are and to reprogram them, to help brainwash them. You can see how offensive this would be. The enemy king names being superimposed over their God names. Some of you guys have been there. Some of you guys are there because you've been walking this fire road for a long time. You've been in the place of the fire for so long that it's, it's giving you a new identity. It's starting to define who you are and how you live. I can see it on some of you because you've had to morph and adjust your life to deal with the cancer. You've had to morph and adjust your life to deal with the divorce. You've had to morph and adjust your life to deal with the failure or the pain or the poverty or the injustice. You've had to work your life around the ugly there. And you've been to some degree renamed by it. But I want to promise you something right now. Are you looking at me? I want to promise you something. The name of the enemy king will never define you, okay? The name that the enemy wants to place on your life will never define you. Oh, you carried the name of the enemy king at one time because all of us are born into the culture of the enemy. We're born with sin DNA in our lives, and we worship the wrong king. We bow to the wrong king. We worship whatever it is we worship, and it's usually just ourselves. And that makes us traitorous enemies against a holy God. And so because we are enemies of the king, we're separated from him, and we deserve a criminal's punishment, a treasonous criminal's punishment. We are under the judgment and the punishment of death. But God loved you so much. Listen to me. He loved you so much that he looked at you and he saw your guilt and he saw what you deserved. But he loved you so much that he provided a path around that for you. Because he sent his son, Jesus, who had no sin at all of his own. And Jesus came here and he went to the cross sinless, united with God in heaven. But God punished Jesus for your sin and my sin. Jesus took my punishment for me on the cross. He dies in my place so that I don't have to. He died, went to the grave, and he rose again three days later, and he gives his new life to me. When I have a relationship with him, he gives me new life. He changes everything about me. He wipes away that old guilt. He wipes away that old shame. He wipes away 
away that old death and he makes me new. He gives me a new identity. He gives me a name, the name that is above every name. He actually makes me a co-heir to the throne with Jesus in heaven. And that name can never be revoked even by the enemy king. That's my name now. So you're not owned by the enemy king, right? You don't belong to this world. If you're in Christ, you belong to him. You are set apart. You live your life on purpose for him. Isn't it good to live your life on his much bigger, much better purpose? I mean, look at how the world treats people who have no bigger purpose. The winds of our culture blow and are knocking people around here and there. Nobody even knows what to believe anymore. I said it last week. The most recent survey says that almost a full 50% of the millennial generation doesn't believe in God and doesn't care. And they don't just not believe. They don't know what to believe, and they don't even care what to believe. You know why? It's because the culture has battered and battered and battered them so much, they don't even care anymore. They're broken. And they desperately need the hope that God has for them in Christ, which you have. You've been given this hope, this future, this promise, and now you live on purpose for him, glorifying him, lifting him up, shining your light into this dark, dark world. Isn't it good? Isn't it good to have his name written on our hearts? And these boys, these boys there in Babylon they never forgot who they were sure they were given new names but they never forgot who they were they knew who they belonged to they didn't cry about it they didn't fight about it they didn't drop their head and shut up and just take it they rose above it you see that they rose above it and they walked boldly through it because when they knew who they were like you know who you are God gives you the strength the courage the power to walk confidently in him to rise above the fires of this world and to be able to stand strong they actually believed this. They actually knew who they could trust, right? They believed it so deeply. Did you see what one of them wrote right here in his book? Daniel writes this. He says this in verse 2. You might have missed this. It's really important. He's talking about what happened, how the fall into the fire began. And he says, the Lord gave him, verse 2, the Lord gave him, that's Nebuchadnezzar, victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah. The Lord gave the bad guy victory over the good guy, the king of Judah, and permitted the bad guy to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. Yeah, the fall happened. Yeah, everything started going to crap. And it hurt. And it was scary. And it was ugly. And we hated that. Some of our friends died in all of that. I mean, it was bad. But who gave it? Who gave it? There is no terrible circumstance in your life that God's not already the God of. Right. Amen. I'm going to say it again. There's no terrible circumstance in your life that God is not already the God of. 
He is in charge. This is all working according to his plan. Yeah, it may stink sometimes. Yeah, it may hurt sometimes. Yeah, it may cause us to lay awake at night in pain and agony sometimes. But do you believe it all works out according to his plan? Because you just sang about it about 15 minutes ago. It all works according to God's plan. And he's the same God in Jerusalem that he is in Babylon. He's the same God on the mountaintop as he is in the darkest valley. He is God, the king of all kings, even Nebuchadnezzar. So they knew they did not belong there, but next blank, they believed that God put them there. They believed. The next B is they believed that God put them there. They actually believed that God had a plan, that they were there for a reason, where they didn't want to be, there where it hurt, there where it was confusing. They actually believed that God had a plan and put them there for a reason, just like Joseph did, who in Genesis 50 looks at his brothers, and after years and years and years of separation, slavery, and even being in prison, Joseph looks at them and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Or just like Mordecai said to his niece, Esther, right? When all of the Jewish people are about to be killed, he sends her a message and he says, who knows that God didn't make you queen for just such a time as this. You are where you are for a reason. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's not because God hates you and wants to step on you. God's got you here for a reason. Can I get an amen? Yes. He's in charge of it all. And he has a plan. And he puts us here for a reason. And if he puts them here for a reason, if he puts you here for a reason, he's going to do something about it. He's not going to let you just sit there. He's going to do something about it. So he did with these boys. Daniel 1, God gave these four young men now in the training program for three years an unusual aptitude. I love that phrase because I never heard that when I was in school. Can you say it with me? An unusual aptitude. Yeah, he gave them an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of Babylonian literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings and the visions of dreams. Hey, when God puts you where you don't belong, he'll equip you to do exactly what he wants you to do. All right, when he's got you in the road to the fire, he's going to equip you with everything you need. He's not leaving you hanging. Okay, he's got you there for a reason. So he's going to lift you up. He's going to build you up. He's going to equip you to be a shining, bright light, even on the road to the fire. So when the training period, this is verse 18, when the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all of the young men to the king. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered 
the royal service. Three years have gone by and they enter the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any manner requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them to be ten times more capable than all the people he had relied on before. The magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers of Babylon. They performed so well. They had such insight and wisdom. These kids, that they were 10 times more capable than the enchanters and the magicians, the sorcerers of King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, are you seeing what's happening here? Because you'll see it here, and I so wish you'd see it here in our world. Here they are, captive, forced into this training program, giving up everything they had dreamed for, and far away from home. And you know what? They prove to be a light to King Nebuchadnezzar. They prove to show King Nebuchadnezzar a little bit of how good the real God is. In other words, the next B is they became the best testimony they could. They were where they didn't belong, where they didn't want to be, but they became the best testimony they could. See, here's my cry. Here's my lament. In our culture, this never happens, right? Because if it's a Democrat, the Republicans will not cooperate. If it's a Republicans, a Republican, the Democrats will not cooperate. We dig in our heels, and just because we disagree with you on one thing, we're going to fight you on everything. Am I right? And we Christians are about the worst at it. And, and actually, if we find out that we disagree with something that you just thought about, you know, 20 years ago, we'll cancel culture your butt. Right? I mean, we just, we're going to fight and we're going to separate. We're going to divide. We're going to dig our heels in and prove that we, we believe in God, so we will not work with you. What? You see, these boys were way smarter than we tend to be in our culture today. They realized that they were never there to represent the enemy king. They were representing the king of kings to the enemy king. And so they were going to be the absolute best representation of God they could possibly be so that the enemy king might just catch a glimpse of how good, how loving, how powerful, how wise, how gracious the king of kings really is. Maybe if they just shine their light enough, if they just show God's goodness enough, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon would realize that he is in fact no king at all compared to the king of all kings. Why do we dig in our heels and fight and get angry and so consumed with all the everything and we hide our light under that bushel to prove our point does that even make any sense but that's exactly what happens isn't it come on am I right or am I wrong these were smart kids Paul got it too that's why he told us in his book to the Colossians letter to the Colossians he says this work willingly at whatever you do I don't care how bad your job is 
Okay, how difficult it is. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is not Nebuchadnezzar. It's Christ Jesus. You don't serve the kings of this world. You serve the king of all kings. And this really worked for Daniel and Hananiah and as uh, uh, I can't even remember his name, Azariah and Mishael. It's really worked for them because they remained faithful and consistent and because Daniel exercised his gift at interpreting dreams, the king ends up promoting these boys by the end of chapter two over almost all of the affairs of Babylon. Because they're wise and faithful and shine their light, they get elevated up to where they're in charge of a lot of stuff in town. This, these kids are now the bosses. See, here's what happens. A lot of times for me and you, our opportunities come along as a byproduct of our adversities that we go through. I'm going to say that again because you might want to write that down. Our opportunities come along as a byproduct of the adversity that we go through. God put you here for a reason, and maybe he wants to elevate you to that high place, but the path to the high place is often through the road to the fire. Am I making any sense? Okay, I'm just trying to wake you up a little bit here. So Nebuchadnezzar was known to kind of be a crazy mood swing bipolar kind of dude. And he was up and down and here and there all the time. Worshipped every god you could ever possibly think of. So he's battered about by the cultural winds himself. And so one day he gets this wild hair. We don't know what happened or how it happened. And it's a little bit in the future. So we kind of flash forward maybe 15, 20 years into the future. And Nebuchadnezzar sets up that giant statue. It's 90 feet tall and nine feet wide solid gold it must be a god they were told do you know that song anybody know that song Russ Taff come on not gonna bow nobody knows old school Christian rock from the 80s I love that song that's a great song somebody said okay mention Russ Taff in the message you're gonna mention Carmen next week no Carmen stinks (laughs) Carmen Carmen no Russ Taft, though, come on, he was, he rocked. I don't know what Carmen was doing the whole time. Anyway, so, (laughs) big Carmen fan, you're a big Carmen, the champion. Yeah, okay. I like Carmen, too, when he's somewhere else. Um, So, a herald shouted out, here we go. Here's the story you all know. People of all races and nations, and people of all languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of all the popular media playing its song, when you hear all the popular media telling you what to do, you better do it. When the music starts, you bow to the ground and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. So worship the pagan god statue or be cooked alive. That's the story. Well, our boys are all about Jerusalem. They know who they worship. They know who the real God is. 
There's no way they can bow to this fake God. There's no way they can even pretend to worship this fake God. They're not going to bow to him. They're not going to give him any credit, any worship. They're not even going to pretend. I don't know why we can't learn this lesson from these boys. Because we all bow. When you hear the music play, when you hear the popular culture tell you what to do, you better do it. And I know, I know, in our current cultural climate, us good conservatives are like, yeah, we're not going to wear the mask because we're the anti-maskers and we're not going to do what they tell us to do. So we're going to come here to church and when the music plays on stage, we'll bow, we'll bow to God. But man, as soon as we get home, we're all going to binge watch our favorite naked TV show. And we're going to watch all of our favorite characters on Game of Thrones or whatever, just doing it every other week. And we will bow as soon as the popular media starts playing its tune. We give ourselves away, bowing to our cultural idols. I don't care what you bow to. When you bow to anything, when anything, anything changes your behavior, changes your direction, captures your attention, captures your affection other than God, it's an idol. It's no different than a 90-foot-tall gold statue. It makes just as much sense. So I don't know if it's materialism or sex or jealousy or anger. You don't serve those things. I don't know if it's the movies or the media. You don't serve popular media. You don't serve Christians. You don't serve Build Back Better. And you don't serve Make America Great. You serve the King of Kings who made America, who made the world, who made the universe. You serve Him and Him alone. Stop bowing to every idol that comes down the pike. Got real quiet though, real quick. So you know the story. I don't have time for all of it. I'm already running late. But listen, they won't bow. They won't bow. They're kids. They've learned everything. They're shining their light. They're being a testimony. They won't bow. And so the other the the the, the guys that the king used to rely on know they're on the outs. So they know that the kids won't bow. So they come and tattle. Right? They're like, Hey, king, they're not gonna bow. What are you gonna do about it, huh? You know? And they make a big deal of the king and the king being you know bipolar like he is he, go, he gets crazy and he orders them to come into his presence and he's like is it true is it true you won't bow you're my star students and you won't bow to the big idol he's like I'm going to give you one more chance they're going to play again and you better bow you get up in front of everybody and you bow and here's the kids the kids looking at the angry furious king yelling at them threatening them with their lives these kids on the threat of death reply to the king in Daniel 3.16 O Nebuchadnezzar we don't need to defend ourselves before you if we're thrown into the blazing furnace the God whom we serve is able to save us he will rescue us from your power your majesty 
But look at this. Even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. We know God's capable of rescuing us. He's God. But even if he doesn't, we trust him alone anyway. Even if he chooses to let this be the end of us, we're going to go down worshiping him. We're not going to bow to your idol. Next B is this. They would not betray the Lord. They would not betray the Lord. No matter what, even in the face of the fiery furnace. So the king gets furious. This throws him over the edge. He loves these boys. They're literally his star students. But the scripture says his face became disfigured with rage. And he orders the furnace to be heated up seven times hotter than normal. So in other words, make it really hot. The furnace. Make the furnace hot. I always wondered about this furnace. You know, what's the furnace? You know, you, some houses have a furnace in them to keep you toasty in the wintertime. What, what's, a, what's a furnace? Well, I did a little research, and, and I, re, I forgot that this story is in the middle of the Iron Age. This is a smelting furnace. I got a little representation of it here that uh, you might see. It's a, it's a giant furnace that gets hot enough to melt iron. And it's a purifying process where iron is separated from its ore. It melts iron. It's not like, oh, it's really, really warm in there. It melts iron. This is hot, 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 huge, hot stuff. And he says, heat it up seven times more than usual. Some of the scholars say that when he says this, he's not talking about, you know, actually take the temperature, okay, two more times, you know, hotter. It's an idiomatic phrase, meaning get it as hot as it'll possibly go. Turn the oven all the way up to 11. So they heat the thing up, and he orders the strong men in. They come and they grab the boys. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't know where Daniel is at this point. They tie them up, fully clothed and everything, tie them up, and they take them to be thrown into the fire. The fire is so hot at this point that the strong men that are throwing them in are actually killed by the heat, the intense heat of the fire. But the boys end up falling into the fire. You saw the, where the fire was. It actually goes down much deeper than that. There's the underground part and then the overground part. So the boys fall into the flames. They fall into the smelting furnace. The end. I mean, how could it not be the end? It's, it's the smelting furnace. It's the furnace that melts iron. I mean, how could it not be the end? That's hot. It even kills the Terminator, right? I mean, the Terminator gets killed in the smelting furnace. All right, come on. My people are over here on this side of the room. That's how hot it is. It melts the Terminator. Ain't nobody over here watched the Terminator? I love those movies. Well, the first two. Okay. 
So it's hot, hot stuff, and they get thrown in there. It should be the end of the story. It should be over, capital O, over at this point. And some of you, some of you have gotten so in the fire that it feels like it's the end. It feels like you're never getting out of this. This is the end of me. I might as well give up now. My son-in-law in Florida has been longing to get out of a very, very difficult job situation that he's found himself in. Anybody relate to that? It's kind of a bad situation. Very, very large company, multiple uh, divisions all across the United States. It's a very, very difficult place to work. In fact, uh, it's, just, it's just bad. He's been there for about a year. It's only been there for about a year. But in that short amount of time, things have just deteriorated to the point where everybody in his division is, they've all left, and he's the only engineer left. He's all alone there. Everybody else has gotten out, and he's desperate to get out. So he's put out feelers. He's put out job applications. He's gotten online, and just application after application after application. He's tried, and he's tried, he's tried, and it's rejection after rejection after rejection. He's a good engineer working at a great company and just a bad situation where he is, but he's only got one year of experience. He's just not, I mean, he's not hireable right now very well. So it's just rejection after rejection, rejection. And that guy, he's the dad of my grandson. So we want him here, come here, come here. There's no job like that for anyone in LJ, but guess what? One of the companies he really loves and respects that he would die to work for had a job opening in Gainesville right about an hour away, not too long ago. And so last week, we, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, uh, they had taken him through this extensive interview process. He'd had multiple interviews with them. Things were looking great, and they were like, listen, why don't you just come up here? This is the last stage in the interview process. We almost never bring anyone to this part. Just come on up to Gainesville. We'll give you a tour of the plant. You'll meet the CEO, and, and we'll do our final interview, and it'll, it'll be great. So they came up, went through the interview process, and man, he came back home to tell us all about it, really excited. And they were like, <laughs> they were like, hey, don't worry. You'll, you should be expecting to hear something at the beginning of the week. And he did. He got an anonymous rejection letter from a no-reply email address. And all of his dreams came crashing down. Not just his dreams, but his mother-in-law's dreams because that means the grandson doesn't come here. All of his wife's dreams, because she longed to be with her mom and dad more. All my dreams. I remember walking the dogs and just praying, God, please make it happen. Please make it happen. Please make it happen. I think I prayed that a thousand times. Please, God, just make Gainesville happen. Make Gainesville happen. And it's over. The end. It's not going to happen. And he's burned. He's burned. Emotionally exhausted, he looked at my daughter, his wife, and he said, can we just stop for a while? I just, I, need to, I just need to regroup. Nothing but rejection. And then to be taken to that level and then to be hit with a no-reply email rejection, was, it stabbed him right in the heart. It feels like the end. But my daughter texted me, and she said, Dad... 
I know everything looks bad, but we are, and in all caps, she, she typed, cool, cool. She said, we've been through the fire, but we're still cool. She said, we know God has a plan, and we trust his plan, even though we don't know what it is. She said, be sure to tell mom that. So I'm telling you right now. Sometimes you think it's the end of the story. The fire should be the end of the story. But the king looked in the fire and he saw something. He looked and there was three, those three boys, they weren't burning up in the fire. They were walking around unharmed. And it wasn't just the three of them. Suddenly, verse 24 of chapter 3, suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Well, well, yeah, 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 it's three, three. Um, you saw that happen, right? Three men, they replied. And look, Nebuchadnezzar, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. He saw something in the fire. He saw that they were not alone in that fire. So Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants, not of Nebo, not of Aku, not of Bel, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked out of the end, walked out of the fire, stepped right out of the fire. They were thrown in there, but they stepped right out. The fire is not the end of your story. I'm going to say it again. The fire is not the end of your story. In fact, look at what happened next. The high officers, officials, governors, and advisors who were all commanded to bow to the big 90-foot statue, they gathered around them to see that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched, and they didn't even smell like smoke. They came out of the fire not even smelling like smoke. Dude, they came out of the fire because somebody was in that fire with them. They might have had to go through the fire. They might have had to deal with the heat, but they didn't deal with it alone. Jesus showed up and walked right through that blazing fire with them, and he made all the difference. That's why Isaiah says to me and to you, speaking for God, when you go through the deep waters... I'll be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned. The flames will not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The last beatitude for you is this, He will always be with you in the fire.